Thank you, Phil, and thank you also, Phil, for your ministry. Uh, to marriages, we're all grateful for the work you do in sustaining intimacy in the home and launching new couples through a great counseling ministry. So thank you very much for that. We're all uh, profoundly grateful for your ministry. And welcome, everyone, to Bethany Community Church as we're worshiping together again today online, virtually, in many places in our city, in our state, and our nation, and our world. It, of course, is a significant day because Seattle is playing Buffalo, and so we'll all be praying for a victory there. Uh, the biggest race of the week has not yet happened, as I speak, at 8 on Sunday morning. So we'll just see. We'll just see. But in the meantime, there was another election and contest this week, and I'd like to offer uh, something from the book of Joel that will help us move forward together uh, collectively. So please join me in prayer now as we look at what God has to say to us. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege that we have of uh, gathering, though virtually, to listen for your voice and to be shaped as people of hope. Many of us, most of us, gather uh, in the United States and we're mindful of not only an election, but uh, the ongoing process of the election. And my prayer, Father, is that as we dive deep into your text this morning in your revelation that you would speak to this moment. Thank you that the Bible is a living word. May it live in our hearts today in order that we might be shaped by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, everybody, as we know, has a story in our lives. And in a ministry that we began this summer entitled Ancient Paths, uh, people were invited to draw a life map. And if you draw a life map, there are... uh, uh, elements in your story that are above the line, good things that happen, and there are bad things that happen as well. And this is in keeping with actually the theme that runs throughout the entire scripture, as I shared last week. Scripture has this pattern. Uh, We're in a state of order, and then there's disruption and chaos. There's a state of disorder, and then there's a reorder, and God's intention is that the reorder would always be of a higher level than the previous order. So life goes like this, order, disorder, reorder. And the reorder becomes a new order, and then there's disorder, and then there's reorder. And hopefully this leads to this upward trajectory. But the truth is, if we were masters of our own destiny, none of us would ever choose disorder. We'd always get the job we apply for. We'd always get the spouse that we want. We'd always live happily ever after. We'd always get the promotion. We'd always be healthy. We'd always be on good terms with every family member and every neighbor and every friend. We'd never get a flat tire. Our cars would never break. Our refrigerators would never, would never break. Our houses would never burn down. There'd never be any cancer. All would be well. But here's the thing that you must see. When we look at the Bible, we learned this very important principle, the greater the level of disorder in our lives, the more profoundly beautiful the reorder becomes. You see it over and over again in the scripture. And uh, one example that comes to mind for me is in the book of Genesis. Joseph, as you know, many of you know, he's one of 12 brothers. He's hated by his brothers. He's beaten. He's sold into slavery. In his new land, he's framed for rape. He's unjustly uh, accused and imprisoned. He's then forgotten in prison. But yet when the story is over, God uses Joseph to save the other 11 brothers physically from starvation and to save them spiritually as they move from this self-righteousness and pride and arrogance into a state of confession and ultimately love and transformation. Profound disorder leading to a profound reorder. Job loses everything, but by the end of the story, Job says, man, before my time of disorder, my paraphrase, 
I'd heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you, and I have greater intimacy for having been plunged into a time of disorder. And the ultimate loss, of course, in the Bible, it seems, is found in the first story, the story of Adam, because we read in Romans 5 that uh, through Adam's sin, he brought sin and death to all of humanity. But then we read in Romans 5.18 that so then as through the transgression of one, there resulted in condemnation to all, all the much more now as a result of that disorder, through the second Adam, one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life to all of humanity. Great disorder, a greater reorder. That's beautiful and appropriate and a living word because 2020, if I were to use one word to describe it, would be this, disorder. It's global and local. It's physical and economic. It's systemic and personal. It's challenging marriages and it's challenging parenting. And it's, it's revealing not just inequities, but injustices and indignities. It's political and theological. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, if you remember last week, Joel is framed by locusts coming in and destroying the economy of the nation of Israel. And one wave after another came in again and again and again, as has happened in our own culture. COVID, economy, race, politics, and then layer on top of that whatever are your own personal issues, health issues, marriage issues, addiction issues, wave after wave of disorder. But I want to suggest to you with a word of hope today that if we can understand the value of these times of disorder and embrace them, we can learn from them. And if we learn from them, we can be transformed for the better in the midst of them. And if we can be transformed for the better in the midst of disorder, we will move closer to the life for which we're created. We'll, we'll live at a higher level. And so the book began with this economic devastation last week. This week in chapter 2, there are three themes that we must embrace and welcome in our lives if we are to move out of disorder into a state of higher order. And those three themes are, first of all, the day of the Lord, and, 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 and second of all, then the fire of the Lord, and third of all, the need for a change of heart. Day of the Lord, fire of the Lord, the need for a change of heart. Uh, let's look at these together, beginning with the day of the Lord. So I'm going to turn to Joel in uh, uh, chapter 2. And when I come to chapter 2 in verse 1, this is what I read. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Now, this would be a weird word for Israel. And here's why. Because the day of the Lord was always viewed by Israel as God coming to vindicate Israel. So now Joel is saying to Israel, hey, blow a trumpet. Do, 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 do. Why? The day of the Lord is coming. But it says here, let all the inhabitants of Israel tremble. Wait a minute. If the day of the Lord is coming, doesn't that mean we win? Not necessarily. Watch this video to understand the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book, 
When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be. A whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward and he's swallowed up by death. Now after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb. It's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? This time the target is Israel. What? Means this. When we use God language, and everyone who uses God language does this, when we use God language, we think of the day of the Lord as about God bringing judgment to them. Does that make sense? Like here we are on the moral high ground and oh, the day of the Lord is coming, God's gonna judge them. And if you're Republican, God's gonna judge the Democrats. And if you're Democrat, God's gonna judge the Republicans. And if you're Christian, God's gonna judge the Muslims. And if you're part of the African, <laughs> African community, God's gonna judge the cops. And if you're part of the cops, God's gonna judge the rioters. The evangelicals think judgment is for the liberals and vice versa. So we look forward to the day of the Lord and then we discover, oops, the judgment isn't just for them. The judgment is for us too. We have things to learn. So can I say this with everything in me? Don't be too quick to, uh, to wish judgment on your enemy because if you're only looking for judgment for your enemy, you will miss what God has to teach you. This is so significant. In Lincoln's second inaugural address offered in the midst of the Civil War, this is what he wrote. Each looked for an easier triumph, both sides, and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both sides read the same Bible. Both sides pray to the same God and each invokes God's aid against the other. And it may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God for God's assistance in wringing the bread from 
uh, the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we not be judged. And then this so significant phrase, the prayers of both could not be answered because both sides wanted victory. The prayers of neither side has been answered fully. Why? This phrase, the Almighty has his own purposes. Listen, let that phrase sink in. The Almighty has his own purposes. The thing to see is that the day of the Lord is about rooting out any and all vestiges of evil, as we saw in the video. So if there's evil among people who claim to love Jesus, and there is, it will be exposed. If there's evil among people using religion for selfish purposes or nationalistic identity, it will be exposed. The day of the Lord is before anything else about exposing. German churches were singing Martin Luther hymns and praying for Nazi victory, but the Lord has his own purposes, and there was a day of the Lord. Most of the Hutus who slaughtered the Tutsis were professing Christians who worshiped regularly on Sunday, even together in the same congregations, but the Lord has his own purposes, and there was a day of the Lord. The Confederate soldiers of the South had as many congregants claiming to love Jesus praying for them as the Union soldiers of the North had praying for them, maybe more, but the Lord has his own purposes and there was a day of the Lord. Both sides claim God in every case. And so both sides are continually surprised when the other side prevails. But two things are true. If you won, victory doesn't mean vindication. Doesn't mean all your people, all your ideas, all your methodologies are right. In the book of Habakkuk and here in Joel, God uses the evil Babylonians to expose the idolatry of Israel, but that doesn't make the Babylonians righteous. On the surface, the Babylonians actually look far more evil, but the Lord has his purposes. If your side isn't victorious, it's because your side also has evil that needs to be exposed. Both sides have evil. Various evils are exposed at various times. Learn from what's exposed. The Lord has his purposes. The day of the Lord brings things to light. And anyone who's willing to allow the light to expose things that need exposing can move out of the disorder that is the day of the Lord into the reorder of greater righteousness, greater generosity, greater charity, greater peace, greater working together. But those who blame, those who refuse to learn from the day of the Lord will miss it and remain in this state of anger and bitterness and frustration that is disorder. And I would just say to you that this week, a day of the Lord has come and has actually revealed that we're deeply divided. And a house divided against itself cannot stand, Abraham Lincoln. Or Jesus, who said it this way, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. The protests and counter-protests, the Black Lives Matter and the Blue Lives Matter, the free and fair elections and the conspiracy theorists, the social conservatives and the social liberals, the nationalists and the globalists, the evangelicals and the new non-evangelicals or ex-evangelicals, we are divided. And the great temptation in moments of division is to view everything through the lens of our quote-unquote moral high grounds. But can I say to you this morning, no person, no party, no city, no nation, no church, no institution, no president, no president-elect, no ex-president has arrived. None. <laughs> How do I know? Paul said this 
Philippians chapter 3, at the end of his life, this is Paul, who is an apostle, who enjoys intimacy with Jesus, who is utterly committed to nothing less than the kingdom of God being made present in the world. Paul says this at the end of his life, Philippians 3, I have not yet arrived. There's still darkness in me, selfishness in me, hidden issues in me that I'm not even yet aware of. I have not yet arrived. God is still teaching me. Let me just ask this morning, what is God teaching you now? Because what God is teaching you is more important to you than what God is teaching your enemy. We need to be humble and learn here. So the day of the Lord is never a day to vindicate you and your view. The day of the Lord is always to expose for everyone what needs to be exposed. May we be teachable. Second, and also hugely significant, a theme in Joel is the fire of the Lord. In Joel chapter 2, uh, as Joel predicts now post-locusts, the Babylonians coming in, he calls the Babylonians a fire. And in verse 3, he says, a fire consumes before them, and behind them flame burns. The land will become desolate because of the fire. And all of us in 2020 have been met with images of fire. I mean, if you live in California, you've lived through the fire over and over and over again, and in Oregon. What is fire saying to us? Well, it's interesting. I'm literally studying this text, and I get a knock on the door this week from the county fire marshal in Kittitas County, where we live, just east of Seattle. I'm trying to build a little shed in the backyard that will become an office space for me. And uh, we needed the fire marshal to come and check out our site plan to see how we could build it in a way that would make it safe for fire. So the fire marshal has to sign off on our project. And as I'm studying fire, I get a knock on the door and it's the fire marshal. And I think to myself, oh, this is a perfect sermon illustration. And, and, and we go to the backyard and he looks around, and this is the first thing he says. He says, listen, whatever we do here, you need to know this. You need to build your structure with stuff that can't be burned. And I thought, thank you for preaching my sermon for me. I need to build my structure with stuff that can't be burned. In this case, uh, concrete siding and a metal roof. But in the case of the rest of us, let's take that principle and extrapolate from it what God is trying to teach us through the book of Joel. Why do I need to build with stuff that can't be burned? Here's why. Because everything that's flammable, everything that's flammable will eventually be burned. And what can be burned is temporary, and what's temporary should never define your identity. And this includes leaders, because leaders don't last. And this includes parties, because parties don't last. And this includes nations, because nations don't last. Pray for your leaders, vote for your party, commit to your nation, but recognize the temporality of all of it. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the judgment of the believer at the end of time. 
and says this, listen, even believers are judged and God lights a fire to our lives and everything that's made of wood and hay and, 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 and stubble, stuff that's flammable, everything that we did, quote unquote, in the flesh will be burned up. Everything that we did out from the spirit will remain. And in Hebrews 12, the author there talks about the necessity of burning up that which can be burned so that the things that cannot be burned might not only remain, but be revealed for the priceless treasures that they are. And so I'm asking the question this week in my own life, what needs to be burned? And as I studied the text on Wednesday night, right in the midst of election turmoil, it was hard to sleep, not because of the election, but because of that single question. Richard, what in your life needs to be burned? What needs to be burned in your life? Could be individualism, could be nationalism, could be arrogance, could be pride, could be dishonesty, could be consumerism, could be a hidden addiction, could be a wall that you've built uh, to protect the dark places of your soul, and it's preventing intimacy in your marriage. What needs to be burned? It's a very important question. Why? Because the things that remain are the things that God is interested in in elevating and displaying through you as a means of calling everyone to hope. (laughs) So let what needs to be burned be burned. Instead of individualism, for example, God is calling us to live out from the reality that when one person suffers, everybody suffers. Our interconnectedness, there is no longer male nor female, uh, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, black nor white, gay nor straight. Look, we're called together to care for one another. What needs to be burned? Instead of nationalism, God's calling us to live out from the reality that God's kingdom, which is intended to be our first and highest reality, is not defined by national borders, is not defined by political identities. God's kingdom is made up of every tribe, every nation, every party. We're a vast family of sons and daughters scattered around the globe. Instead of arrogance, Instead of a sort of, I'm the smartest and my people are the best and I'm the most powerful and I'm the greatest, there's there's a humble gratitude to which we're called, a gratitude for the gifts that God has given and with that a recognition that we are who we are because of God's grace and mercy. So I'm not called to arrogance, I'm called to gratitude. I'm not called to individualism, I'm called to this uh, collective notion that when one suffers, all suffers. I'm not called to nationalism. I'm called to God's kingdom. I'm not called to consumerism. I'm called called to generosity and simplicity and creativity. When the idols burn up, the stuff that matters remains. Let, Let the fire burn. And the beautiful yet plain truth is this. The hotter the fire, the more thorough the burning. It was hot in Rwanda. And now it's a beautiful place, as we'll hear two weeks from today from our friend Moses, who will bring the word to the Bethany community, straight from Rwanda. It was hot in Germany. And if it's personal for you, it's hot when there's cancer. It's hot when there's unemployment. It's hot when a hidden addiction comes into light. And hot fires are fine. (laughs) You know, all of us should be asking this question. God, what are you trying to change in me 
in this 2020 year of disorder, this year of fire? What are you trying to change in me? Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a book entitled The Day in the Gulag. He was a a Russian dissenter, imprisoned, spent time in Siberia. And within that book, like he's tossed into prison and he goes there thinking that he has the moral high ground. But this is what he writes in his book about what he learned during his time in the Gulag. Gradually, I'm quoting now, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not even between political parties. The line separating good and evil, hear this, passes through every human heart, through all human hearts. The line shifts, in, in us it shifts. It oscillates with the years. And even with hearts overwhelmed by evil, there's a little bit of good retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains the unuprooted small corner of evil. The line between good and evil passes through every human heart. So the question is not what God are you trying to do to them? It's this, what God do you want to root out of me? What still needs to be burned? Which, which leads then automatically to verses 12 through 14 of Joel. We need a change of heart, the third theme. Yet even now, declares the Lord, even now, like in the midst of economic uncertainty, in the midst of a rising COVID crisis, in the midst of uncertainty regarding an election, in the, in the midst of um, partisan anger, in the midst of it all, what now? Even now, return to me with all your heart and rend your heart, not your garments. This is our calling. So our calling in this moment as we embrace these themes, the theme of the day of the Lord, the theme of the fire, and now the theme of the change of heart. Our calling is this. First of all, decidedly not to go through a list of religious rituals in hopes of getting God to do something on our behalf, in in hopes of returning back to normal. This is what the danger of legalism is in Christianity. When, When... Something happens in our lives because we're raised often in legalistic and cause and effect environments. When we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis, we go, well, you know, if I would just have my quiet time more consistently, none of this would happen to me. So I need, I need more devotions. Or as a nation, you know, well, if we just pray more, if we just, you know, if we pass these particular laws about this particular moral issue, you know, then God's favor is going to shine on us. Let's, Let's make sure that we change the outward form. Listen, look at what God says here. Don't rend your garments, rend your heart. What That little phrase means this. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that by being more religious, you will change the circumstances of your lives God doesn't want your outward performance. God wants your heart. So significant that we understand this. I know that when my wife and I at times uh, get into disagreements, I think we're, un- we're a little unusual as a married couple because I'm the more verbal one of the two, and usually it's the other way around. But uh, I can be a real bad person in an argument with my wife in the sense 
that using my verbal skills, I can just, you know, point and point and point and point until she just gets exasperated. And there have been a few times in our marriage when my poor wife, Donna, in utter frustration, she just stops. She says, hey, what do you want me to do? Just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. And she doesn't say this, but this is how I feel. I'll do it in order to shut you up because you're driving me crazy, right? And then I will say to her, it's not about the doing. I want your heart. Like I want you, I want to get us on the same page. I want your heart. You can do the right thing, but if the heart is unchanged, it doesn't matter. And that's exactly what God is saying in this text. Oh, you think that, you know, more church attendance and a little bit of a larger tithe is going to, is going to change things? You think that passing, you know, two particular laws, you think that the right number of justices in the Supreme Court, you think that the right party in power, uh, in power is going to, is going to fix race, is going to fix life in the womb, is going to change everything? No, laws don't change everything. Uh, religious rituals don't change everything. Jesus, in fact, said it this way in his complaint regarding the Pharisees. You guys have the rituals down. You tithe your spices, man. But I don't want your spices. I want mercy and justice and generosity and hope and peace and charity. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to lay your weapons down. Where's that? Enough religious ritual, says Jesus. I want your heart. So that's what exactly Joel is saying here. Rend your heart. God says before doing, check your heart. Before, before passing laws, check your heart. Before voting, check your heart. Above all else, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with diligence for from your heart flows the wellsprings of life. Jesus' desire is that you would be a river of living water in the desert that is 2020 that you would be hope in the midst of despair, light in the midst of darkness, charity in the midst of hate, a unifying force in the midst of a divided world. That's God's desire. But it will never happen unless your heart is transformed. So the question on the table as we bring this to a close is, what exactly does God mean? Rend your heart. Well, here's the thing. We know from the New Testament and we know even from the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that God's promise for us is that we will receive a new heart by virtue of what Jesus did on the cross. So we have this new heart, but in order for this new heart to define our lives and lead to a visible transformation of priorities and our outward activities, in order for the new heart to actually change the way we live, We've got to let go of the old heart, so to speak. That's why Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus challenges religious people who are obsessing about outward religious performance. And he says to them, hey, you guys are hypocrites. Don't worry about cleaning the outside of the cup if you're not going to change your hearts. Clean the inside first and the outside will be fine. In other words, you can fast you can tear your clothes, you can sing worship songs, you can make a big public display of holiness and still have all the goodness and charity and wisdom that is Christ trapped inside of you, never made visible. You can fast and tear your clothes and sing worship songs and make big public displays of holiness and still hold on to idols of nationalism 
or consumerism or individualism. And when you do that, it's terrible. Because when people see your individualism, see your greed, see your pride, see your propensity to violence, and hear your God language, people are rejecting the gospel. But they're not rejecting the gospel because they see the real gospel. They're rejecting the gospel because they assume that you are the real gospel. In all of your greed, in all of your nationalism, in all of your consumerism, in all of your fear, in all of your violence, they think that's Christianity. And I'm here to tell you, in the name of Jesus, that is not Christianity. So don't layer religion on top of your idols and think it's okay. That's what it means to rend your heart. Allow the heart to so transform you, the new heart, that the idols are burned up so that now you begin in increasing measure to become kind of this movie of ongoing transformation. More grace, more mercy, more charity, more love, more generosity. That's the story of hope that God wants to write in your life. And it requires the old heart values to be put on some kind of an altar, a match lit to them so that they're burnt up. The day of the Lord, a day of revealing what's in our hearts. It's there for all of us. The fire of the Lord, a time for burning for all of us. And then finally, to what end? The day of the Lord, the fire of the Lord, that, that we might actively participate in a change of heart, allowing the new heart to reveal what God has for us. I think the low point of my week was Friday afternoon. I was frustrated, anxious, and mourning, not over the outcome of the election, but over the divisions and the accusations and the false moral high ground. Super frustrating. So I went for a run, and while I was out running, I remembered, oh, two weeks ago, I had the privilege of, of interviewing Charles Moore of the Bruderhof community on a podcast. The link to that podcast will be in your uh, notes if you're watching online. I encourage you to listen to it. So I'm out on a trail run uh, to just kind of try and burn off this anxiety and frustration. And I got my headphones on and I'm listening to my own podcast, which I rarely do, but I wanted to hear what Charles had to say because he'd spoken about politics, which makes it such a poignant podcast. And uh, th this, is, this is what he said. He said, listen, our community works tirelessly for justice and peace and an end to racism. We work tire tirelessly to address poverty. We work tirelessly to um, uh, embody the ethic of creation care. And we do so, he said, because we are ambassadors of a higher kingdom. And then, I love this, he said, we're ambassadors of a higher kingdom regardless of who's in power. Because we don't believe that God's means for God's kingdom is politics. We don't believe that God's means for God's kingdom is politics. And when I heard that on the trail, I stopped it. And with tears in my eyes, I said, forgive me, Jesus. 
for putting all my hope in the outcome. Forgive me, Jesus, for how that's contributed to division. Forgive me, Jesus, because your kingdom does not depend on politics or even nations. I'm in your kingdom now, here, regardless of what's going on. And we who call ourselves Bethany Community Church, not perfect, are called to embody God's kingdom. Let's get on with the work that God has for us. Let the fire burn. Let the new heart be revealed. Let God's kingdom be seen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity that you've given us for interpreting the times in which we live through the lens of Joel. May we be people of new heart, people of new hope, not because there's a new leader, but because there's a kingdom that can never be shaken, Hebrews chapter 12. May our hope be there, and we'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.